Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine. Analyse the Wagner Group's presence in Belarus as they conduct training operations close to the Polish border. And we discuss a telegraph investigation into the elderly and vulnerable Ukrainians who are left in agony after being taken into Russian territory. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 20th of July. One year and 146 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Deputy Foreign Editor Louis Emanuel, and Foreign Reporter Verity Bowman. I started by asking James for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. So, I think the, the, the main stories today are these continued missile attacks on Odessa and Mikhailov. These are... The main port towns, port cities in, in Ukraine, Odessa's been hit three three nights in a row now and Mikhailov two two nights in a row. I think France is going to talk uh, in more detail on this issue, but it's all linked in with uh, the collapse of the grain deal on Monday. Russia's pulled out, claiming that it's not getting a fair bargain. Plenty of people I've spoken to and everything else I've read suggests that it doesn't suit Russia to allow uh, grain to be exported from Ukraine anymore and they're trying to pressure they're trying to improve their position, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll, I'll let Francis take take you through on that. There's a couple of, at least two dead in Odessa and some really terrible pictures of uh, centre of these cities, buildings on fire, et cetera. Um, the other sort of big story, which happened yesterday afternoon, really, I don't know, is Russia has had to admit that Putin can't travel to this BRICS conference in South Africa next month. Now, BRICS is a sort of... A, a major economic summit, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa is, is the acronym. 
um, and Putin has had to put out because Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court and is obligated to arrest him if he's on African territory. Because if you remember him, the ICC put out an arrest warrant for him earlier this year over the the uh, abduction of thousands of children from, from Ukraine. Uh, there was a lot of hoo-ha about this. Putin and the Kremlin were very adamant that he, that he wanted to travel. This is a major humiliation because he's basically had to give in and he's he's gone with what the South Africans asked him to do and he's going to send Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, instead. And he will be joining by uh, Zoom or whatever one of the applications that he uses for his tele- teleconferencing. So obviously looking very weak there. Another story, another important story from yesterday is, is Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner mercenary group, has appeared for the first time since the since he led a rebellion at the end of June. Um, this is an incredibly complicated story to report, and we we just didn't know where he was. We we knew that he had a meeting with Putin a few days after his rebellion, and he was meant to move into exile as part of the peace deal for that rebellion, but no one had seen him, and then. Out of nowhere, this this video appears on one of the Wagner-linked Telegram channels. It looks like it's well, it's clearly been shot on a mobile phone. It looks like it's been shot at dawn, and he's addressing what looks to be hundreds of Wagner mercenary fighters at their camp in Belarus. They've been convoys of, of Wagner mercenaries have been arriving into Belarus uh, through the week, and so he's addressing these guys. That there's, they're obviously they seem in a very upbeat mood. They're all cheering and, and clapping him, etc., laughing his jokes. And he and he sounds quite pumped up as he usually is. There's been lots of reports about here how he's been crushed, how he, uh, the Kremlin's tried to humiliate him by releasing some embarrassing photographs of him, etc. But uh, this is a very defiant upbeat speech he's giving these guys telling them how they're going to reorientate their their operations to africa they're not going to be fighting in ukraine for now he said so that leaves the door open to return at some point so that that is very important two other really quickly two other uh, small also important wagner link stories it's reported this morning that wagner is holding like a military exercise or a training session with the belarus army that in itself isn't a surprise. We know they're going to do that, but they're doing it on the border with Poland, which is putting everyone in, in, in well, putting governments in, in the EU on edge. Poland's already sent a thousand or so extra soldiers up to its border with Belarus to to defend against it. It's very worried. Their intelligence chiefs have said that they've increasing surveillance of Wagner and of, of Belarus. So um, that's definitely something to watch out for. And then there's another small story. Videos come out from a beach resort in Krasnodar in southern Russia. The beach resort is called um, Anapa. And the video shows, uh, it's difficult to know how many exactly, but certainly 100 or more, apparently ex-Wagner mercenaries. Now, these are the ex-convicts. And as I understand it, the so-called K project or Project K uh, which was the recruitment of convicts from Russian prisons that Wagner sort of spearheaded to to boost their ranks last summer is has been wound down and all these guys are being demobilized. So you got hundreds, possibly hundreds, maybe thousands, whatever, of demobilizing ex ex convict Wagner mercenaries in in this beach resort in uh, Russia. It's remarkable. And there's reports of uh, obviously heavy drinking, but also 
these guys are pawning off their uh, medals, you know, selling, going to pawn shops and selling them for, for I don't know how many rubles you get for a Wagner uh, Mercery medal, but uh, apparently that's what they're doing. So there's that from the actual battlefields of Ukraine. I think uh, the stalemate really continues. There's some terrible stories about all the death and destruction, etc. One new item I think there has come out from the Washington Post, which is very well sourced inside the US government. And apparently um, the Ukrainians are complaining to the US that they just don't have the spare parts to repair all these fighting vehicles etc that they've been given by um by the us and that's all that's slowing them down enormously i wrote a story i think at the beginning of the week how uh one of these bradley fighting vehicles like very heavily armored personnel carriers uh, that the us had given uh the ukrainians that are very highly thought of because they're very strong and they can defend defend very well but uh, a third of them, I think they were given around 100, a third of them are already out of action, either completely or they need repairing and they just can't get repaired in time. So a, a, a nice little in, uh, sort of nugget of information there, really displaying the problems that Ukraine, Ukraine's having and pushing through its, uh, its, its counteroffensive. Pretty much seems to have stalled despite all the heavy weapons and, and kit that the West has given Ukraine. One last one last item I'd like to flag up. This from uh, Central Asia, uh, listeners to this podcast. I think are pretty well versed in, in Central Asia's role in, role in this uh, conflict so far. This is another new angle. This is, again, coming from the US, again from one of the US newspapers, saying that the US government is considering putting Kyrgyzstan under sanctions because Kyrgyz companies have been accused of helping helping Russian military uh, military aligned military linked companies evade sanctions now the Kyrgyz are terribly upset about this obviously they claim they haven't been told about this they claim that uh, it's unfair that there's plenty of co- countries who are also being used to evade western sanctions all that is true. Kyrgyzstan, though, is one of the most egregious countries in this. The, you know, the imports of sort of things like cars and washing machines, which are stripped for their microchips, have gone up, you know, 50-fold or something since this war started. And it's pretty clear that a lot of this stuff ends up in Russia. One of the advantages, or well, one of the reasons that a little country like Kyrgyzstan is so useful to the Kremlin for its for for helping it to to beat sanctions is that it's part of something called the Eurasian Economic Union, which is a, a a borderless commercial group headed by the Kremlin, which also includes Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus. And Belarus. So yeah, things to look out for happening over there as well, David. Thank you very very much, James, for all of all of that. Um, Francis, can I come to you? You've been looking. Um, pretty much exclusively at the Green Deal today and its collapse and the implications of that and the reaction of various countries. What have you seen? Thanks, David. Yes, one gets a sense this morning that the world is waking up to the severity of the situation regarding Russia's decision to not only pull out of the Green Deal, but to conduct the strikes on Ukraine's grain silos that James just referred to there, said to have destroyed 60,000 tonnes of grain. It seems that once again, despite numerous warnings, such as the blowing up of the Kafka Dam, the decision by Moscow to ignite the silos has shocked Western 
diplomats. I speculated yesterday as to the Russian strategy, seemingly to sow division in Europe and to offer an incentive to many nations to end the war. So I won't go over old ground, but I will focus instead on the reaction and propositions for a response. The European Union's foreign policy chief, Borrell, has said that Russia is responsible for a major global food supply emergency. I'll quote from him. What we have all, what we already know is that this is going to create a big and huge food crisis in the world. He told journalists before heading into an EU foreign ministers meeting. He said he'd accused Russia of deliberately attacking grain storage facilities in the southern port of Odessa, which he said would deepen the crisis already present. We're seeing this morning that wheat prices have soared further after the Kremlin threatened to attack ships carrying grain to Ukrainian ports. U.S. wheat futures rocketed by 8.5 percent yesterday, their biggest daily rise since just after the invasion of Ukraine last year. I sense two disparate reactions, really, resignation and resistance among the former are those who say that there is realistically very little Ukraine and its allies can do that they cannot risk Western ships being sunk, as Moscow is threatened to do, and therefore the grain will have to be transported via land at a considerably reduced rate. Others, however, are trying to find solutions. Kyiv is planning a temporary shipping route to maintain grain shipments. Ukraine's deputy communications minister has written to the UN shipping agency to say Ukraine has decided to establish on a temporary basis a recommended maritime route. Its goal to facilitate the unblocking of international shipping in the non-Western part of the Black Sea. Now, this route will apparently lead to the territorial waters of Romania, which is one of the neighbouring Black Sea countries. There's also, as I mentioned, a land corridor option being put forward. And in the meantime, Zelensky's chief of staff has said Ukraine needs more defensive weaponry to protect grain supplies from Russian airstrikes. He says it is possible to protect infrastructure via more anti-ballistic missile systems and they are needed for Ukraine to repel these air attacks, he said. Now, in that vein, Germany says it is working with allies to ensure that Ukraine is not left to rot in silos after Russia pulled out of the deal and will intensify its work on getting the grain out by rail. Again, speaking on the sidelines of this EU foreign minister's meeting in Brussels, Germany's foreign minister accused Russia of blackmail, their words, and trying to use the grain as a weapon at the expense of the world's poorest. Quote, hundreds of thousands of people, not only not only millions, urgently in need of grain from Ukraine, it will be affected by this, which is why we are working with our international partners so that the grain in Ukraine does not rot in silos in the next few weeks, but reaches the people of the world who urgently need it. Now, I've been around the bazaars this morning, to borrow Hamish's phrase, getting a sense from knowledgeable folk on this about what else can be done. One suggested a need to think outside of the box, as the West did during the Cold War. I'll quote, there is an absence of creating creative thinking, he told me, and an acceptance that Russia holds the cards. Another argued that Turkey has a major role to play here. They broker the deal and have more of an obligation to escort ships if they can be persuaded. Insurers may also play a part. Even if shipments could, in theory, be made, the Russian threats mean that insurers are likely to pull the plug unless they could in some way be underwritten by the West. One other thought, often the threat of escalation or loss of life is used for a justification by certain figures in the West not to do anything. But that in itself is a decision in a scenario such as this and one that could lead to many 
tens of thousands of people starving to death if the consequences in Africa are as serious as some are saying. In potentially saving some lives, one potentially dooms many, many others. And I think certain African countries are very aware of this. We are starting to see a pivot more in a Western direction on this war in Africa, as those countries recognise that Russia isn't perhaps as much of an ally as it thought it was. James has already touched on the ICC arrest warrant and its implications for Putin and the fact that he will not be able to attend this BRICS summit in South Africa. Many people at the time said that it was an irrelevance, the ICC verdict, but we are seeing there a practical impact of that. And it's not only in Africa that we're seeing countries having to hesitate about how they handle uh, Russia as a result. The announcement has diffused an intense political dilemma for President Ramaphosa. As a member of the ICC, South Africa would have been expected to act on that arrest warrant. And he has now tried to find a solution to it, which doesn't involve Putin there, but still has Russia at the table. They could, however, have defied it, but they chose not to. And that is interesting. And some are saying that with the implosion of Wagner and the potential impact of Russia's decision to withdraw from the grain deal, the West has a golden opportunity to extend its hand to African nations. But it will be interesting to see whether they take it. Thank you very much for that, Francis and uh, and James Kilner. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome back our Deputy Foreign Editor, Louis Emmanuel. Louis, the Foreign Desk has been publishing a number of stories on the thousands of Ukrainian children abducted by the Russian Federation and Belarus this week. The uh, I think I believe it's the final story in the series is out this morning, and it's about something a little bit different. Could you talk to us about it? Yeah, so this is the final part in our uh, series, which has ostensibly been about the um, illegal deportation and abduction of children from the occupied territories into uh, Russia. But today's piece is a little bit different. It looks at how that same practice is also being applied to the elderly and the vulnerable. So when Russia took over a lot of territory, they also, uh, for want of a better phrase, gained many elderly people and vulnerable people, some cared for at home, some in institutions, and they were moved into a Russian system uh, of care or or a care system inside the occupied territories. And inside that system, those people tell us that they were uh, abused uh, and uh, neglected, uh, most commonly had their citizenships, uh, papers and documents taken away and given Russian citizenship instead and um, were ill-treated in these facilities. Uh, some examples, for example, um, one elderly woman told us how she was forced to donate blood that was given to uh, Russian soldiers um, on the front lines. Louis, it's, it's an awful story. We must say at this point that uh, it's been written by Verity Bowman, foreign reporter, and we'll have an interview um, with Verity later on in the podcast today. So if you're listening to the podcast, that will come later. Louis, I mean, looking back over this week, what are the, the sort of individual stories that really stand out for you the most? Is there anything that sort of surprised you when you decided to look into this area? I think the, main, the sort of key takeaway or the key point uh, from all these pieces is that this, this system of this practice runs very deep and I think through the pieces that we published we have managed to prove that fundamentally Russia's claim that it is rescuing um, children from these territories is untrue Uh, and we've seen that from the evidence we found of how they are systematically trying to russify children and brainwash them and and and, and as one of our stories pointed out turn them turn them on Ukraine uh, to be used as weapons. Um, and the other thing that's really struck me 
about this comes from our um, our story we published yesterday about Maria Lavrova Belova, who is uh, Putin's children's rights commissioner and the only other person to be charged with war crimes. And we looked very deep into her family and the story of the child that she allegedly adopted from Mariupol, trying to find out whether he was taken uh, against his own will. And I think one of the things that struck me was how much we still don't know. It's been very hard to get to the bottom of these stories, but there's a lot we don't and we we can't know in a way. I mean, the Mariupol story is really interesting because the city was divided when Russia invaded and took over and a lot of people escaped back into Ukraine. And we've spoken to mostly people who did manage to get back into Ukraine, but there are an awful lot of members of this kid's family who are still in Mariupol and we are unable to talk to them. And they are unable to talk to their members of family who have gone into Ukraine, if you see what I mean. Um, And there is a reluctance to talk across the front lines. I think a lot of people fear that other people around them will see them speaking with the enemy, essentially. And that's particularly risky in in somewhere like Mariupol or in the occupied territory. So I think it just I think it just demonstrates how difficult it is to gather the evidence and that will be reflected in what the prosecutors will be doing in in the ICC and trying to gather the material that they need to push their case forward and bring Putin to to trial. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Louis, and for speaking about all of your stories. Congratulations to you and your team on on this week of stories. And uh, thank you so much for for talking about them to us. Um, Since we've got Verity's interview later on in the episode, can I go to our final thoughts? Um, James or Francis, would you like to start? Hi, David. So I, I think it's uh, I think the grain the grain story is the uh, the big story of the week at the moment, and it's worth uh, reminding uh, listeners that next week Putin is hosting a handful of these African heads of states and heads of government at a conference in St. Petersburg, and I think the build up to that and what comes out of that in the context of the grain deal is going to be really interesting and, and really important to to monitor africa is hugely reliant on on grain supplies from ukraine about 80% of egypt and sudan's wheat for example is from ukraine and russia this is a vitally important deal one of the reasons that russia caved in in july last year and agreed to this un deal is because they came under massive pressure it came under massive pressure from these african leaders and uh, we have to remember as well that the Kremlin doesn't have many friends at the moment, and it has been trying to court these these African states. So in that context, they collapsed the grain deal on Monday, and with this summit, I think it's I think it starts it's two day summit. I think starting this time next week is going to be far more important than 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 it would have been. Thank you very much, James uh, Francis Turnley. Thanks, David. Well, as James was saying earlier, it's becoming increasingly clear that a central difficulty the Ukrainians are finding in their counteroffensive is not only the lack of air support, but mines. Two pieces I've read this week, one in the Financial Times, one in the Wall Street Journal, have underlined the devastating impact that this is happening. Uh, To quote from the former piece... Frontline soldiers in southern Zaporizhia region and eastern Donetsk region largely blame Russia's minefields, a hidden threat that has become a psychological torment. To recapture territory, troops must cross miles of open fields littered with thousands of mines, anti-tank, anti-personnel, improvised explosive devices and an array of booby traps. 
Western armoured be- vehicles, such as the American-made Bradley fighting vehicles and German Leopard 2 battle tanks, have provided some protection. But mine strikes have put many vehicles out of commission, halting advances and leaving the troops to trek on foot through minefields while under fire. This, of course, correlates with some of the footage that we've seen and discussed on the podcast, though to Dom's point a couple of weeks ago, the destroyed tank that still does its job when it saves the lives of those inside and is still, in that sense, a valuable asset. But nonetheless, it is clear now that this has had a major impact on the effectiveness of the counteroffensive, although we're also hearing at the same time that many valuable Western materiel is being kept in the reserves in order to be deployed when these first counteroffensive waves, if that's the way of describing it, can find weak spots. But clearly finding those weak spots is proving incredibly difficult because of the nature of these minefields. Now, we haven't got time to go into solutions to this today, but some experts say that even advanced demining equipment will not necessarily solve matters. This would be a challenge for any advanced Western army. But it does seem that until this is addressed, it will continue to hamper the advanced. And the Wall Street Journal piece talks about soldiers walking through minefields without support because it is too dangerous for them to take in heavy machinery. And once again, when you hear that, it's hard not to make comparisons with some of the attritional style warfare and horrors of the 20th century. Thank you, James, Francis and Louis. Foreign reporter Verity Bowman wrote the article that Louis Emmanuel introduced earlier in today's podcast. Here's her interview with Liza Cassanidi from the charity Helping to Leave. Another article in the series focuses on how Russia has been targeting and capturing elderly and vulnerable Ukrainians. And we've done a longer investigation into this with Liza's help. And... I just wanted to go through that with you and talk about some of the main cases. So the focus of the article is on Oleg Andreev and his daughter. So could you just tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this one I actually worked on myself, so I can I can talk about this one in detail. Yeah, so Janine got in touch with us via our chatbot. She actually tried getting in touch uh, sometime before about her mum, sister and grandma. But back then we didn't have any evacuation routes so they ended up going via Russia through Latvia away so that was uh, sort of like there was already like a chat history in there and then someone brought me like the chat idea being like there is a paralysed man in Makievka and I was like god (laughs) here we go again (laughs) yeah I remember like really sort of stalling replying because I was just like oh no (laughs) I just like yeah it was one of those where I just I just saw the first message and I was like oh Christ okay this is gonna be a big one yeah I need to buy some cigarettes before that. <laughs> yeah, so that was Janine. She, um, it was about her father. She was also like the same age as me, so it was very like I don't know. It felt a bit like extra personal. And her, yeah, her father was in Makivka, but he was from Mariupol originally. So then she gave me a bit of a backstory, which was very just unbelievable. He was paralyzed before the full-scale invasion started, and he was living with his mother in Mariupol, and then. There, the house, the building was hit by like a Russian missile, and his mother didn't survive that. And obviously, there was no like way to contact him. And considering he was paralyzed, and you know his building was shelled, it was quite safe to assume that he was he didn't make it either. So Janine was starting to like accept and like go through the grieving process. 
And I remember it was, was her mom. So her parents were separated, but they were, like, both in different parts of Mariupol. She, like, walked over to his old building and ended up finding out that someone actually dragged him down the stairs and he had just been, like, living just there in a hallway, essentially. Um, but he was alive, which was crazy. And I remember it was, like, it was an important date for Janine when she found out. I think it was either her but No, it was his birthday, I think. And, like, she got the call that day. Um, there was a lot of things in the story that really feel like I'm not a religious person myself, but like a lot of this just feels like some sort of a divine intervention in so many ways. Yes, yeah, so and her mom, I think, arranged for him to be taken to like a care facility, and the only available option was Makivka, which has been occupied since 2014. Mm-hmm. So he ended up in this care home, and when I say care home, like the care part is not really present. The treatment there was just awful, like the nurses were just outwardly horrible like it was very it was made like blatantly obvious that no one cared for this vulnerable people there and they were just an imposition but at the same time like a way to like get money off their pension or whatever yeah so Jean finally decided to get her father out the first well I mean first there was the route planning it was all quite chaotic obviously because that's how it usually is nothing is ever easy (laughs) especially this uh, the director of the care home was also very unpleasant and I think she like had a thing just against Janine in general so we had to come up with like a backstory about where he was going so they would release him so we said he was going to go and stay with his like former girlfriend in Berdansk which is also occupied so we're like he's not don't worry he's staying in like the occupied area he's just just going to be with a lady um, he did actually have the former wife or girlfriend or something in uh, Britannic so that was not entirely a lie but yeah I was saying he was just going to go stay there with her she was she was like a trained nurse so she was going to like look after him so we came up with all of that then uh, I arranged for a driver to go there and then they were like oh yeah well he's on the third floor and we don't have anyone who can help to bring him down which is what kind of a facility are you running here <laughs> so Janine ended up finding someone herself for her old contacts who were essentially come and, you know, like, bring him down, lift him up and bring him down the stairs. So he, we had him brought to Berdansk, and then from there he was taken to Zaporizhia. Once again, like, they weren't allowing any, like, ambulances or anything through, so it had to be just, like, a very just simple car where he, they, like, put a mattress down and he just laid on it. Yeah, and then Zaporizhia, which is unoccupied, so, like, that was, you know, you could breathe out at this point. He stayed at this volunteer-run, like, shelter, care home type place that's run by, like, this really incredible volunteer called Igor, who is just an incredible person. (laughs) Yes, they took him in for a night, and then our partner organization, uh, Safe Passage for Ukraine, arranged for a driver from there to Kiev. And so the whole road must have taken... The day he got got to Berdansk from Mariupol, then he got stuck there for an extra couple of days because the road through out of occupation into Zaporizhia, it wasn't like, there was no, like, concrete. It was just mud. So whenever it rained, it was basically just out of capacity for however long, which is why they ended up getting stuck for a couple of extra days because it rained, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so how long did the whole journey take? It would have been, like, maybe four or five days? Hard to say now. It's been, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a few since. But, yeah, just, like, remember getting, like, a message from Janine that he was, like safely with her and I just I just got so emotional about it I don't know it just felt like so special especially like her like having lost her grandma and like having thought her dad was like dead and just the likelihood of him like getting out in his condition 
being solo. He didn't even have any documents with him, I think. He only had like, a copy, like a photocopy of his passport. But back then, they were sometimes a bit more lenient at the checkpoints, so especially if it was like an older, sick person. Uh, yeah, so he's living at like a private care home quite close to Janine in Kiev. She sees him regularly. In fact, I actually met her, which was... <laughs> Which is, I think, I don't know, I think it's like the most bizarre way to like make a friend. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, she was on holiday in Georgia and I was on holiday in Georgia and we met up and nice. yeah, it was just like crazy. And are there any other cases that sort of stick out in your memory of these vulnerable and elderly people really being taken advantage of and trapped very badly? Yes, there was uh, another eagle who was in the same room as Janine's father, and he called Janine after her father was evacuated, asking to help him leave as well. And then she passed him on to me. So he was also, like, immobile. He could walk or sit up straight. And obviously, like, mentally, I think, a bit affected by everything as well, just based on my communication with him. Also, he just called me Janine the whole time, and I was like, you know what, fine, I'll be Janine. And he didn't really have, like, a clear idea of, like, where to go, because obviously, like, Janine was paying for her father's private facility in Kiev. Uh, and first he was, like, just anywhere, like, to Ukraine-controlled site, I'll have friends, I'll figure the rest out. But that wasn't strictly true. But he was taken to, using a sort of similar route and method, we had him taken to the same place where Janine's father spent a night before going to Kiev, but sort of agreed on a slightly longer term. People at that care home in Makievka just had really done a number on him in the first place. First of all, it turns out that what he had was, I think it's called like reticulitis, but essentially just like a very simple inflammation of the spinal. Not a doctor. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but essentially it was like something super simple that if just treated in a timely manner and correctly, it wouldn't have left him paralyzed. There was absolutely no reason for him to have been bedbound for so long, but he was just left there and left to his devices and he ended up staying in Zaporizhia for about two weeks and then we were going to send him to Ivano-Frankivsk for treatment and he didn't survive the journey he died in as he was being loaded into a car and just looking back at his medical information and stuff there was just no need for him to get to that point but it was just so obvious that no one had any care in the world about his well-being Another one was quite early on. It must have been like late May, early June of 2022. Yeah. So that was, it was, I think it was part of not the fir first big bus I was telling you about before, but the second load from the same sort of source. So once again, like it was like her really young daughter messaging, which always gives me like a bit of a soft spot for that. And it was about her mother who was in Mariupol in a hospital and had liver problems and she was essentially just told by the hospital staff that there was just nothing they could do because they had you no know, doctors one nurse and like some saline solution and that was that just no one was bringing medicine in there was no doctors available so we first took her to a hospital in Berdansk where they had like, two nurses and maybe some painkillers somewhere yeah and then they were like yeah she's got hepatitis and we also can't do anything sorry not sorry and then we had to urgently take her to... She started, like, getting a bit, like, drowsy and confusing things, which is not a good sign. And we had to urgently send her to Zaporizhia. This driver found last minute, and then guess what? It was raining. So they ended up 
spending literally like over 24 hours at the checkpoint waiting for the road to clear and she arrived in Zaporizhia and died two days later and once again like this is just okay maybe we're not talking like neglect here we're talking lack of resources but like the lack of resources didn't just come by itself uh, obviously it was like earlier one Mariupol but like well, there was ideally we just wouldn't get to that point in the first place but it's not like anyone was particularly eager to supply like medical necessities or anything so people who could have been easily treated somewhere else just ended up exhausted and just taken to the point where they die mm. Yeah. I mean, at least she got to see her children perform. Yeah, so it's heartbreaking. Sort of, yeah. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.